Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. About 15,000 years ago, the weather began to warm, melting the glaciers of the late Pleistocene and driving the beasts of the Ice Age toward extinction. In this new landscape, humans managed to adapt to unfamiliar habitats and dangerous creatures in the midst of a wildly fluctuating climate. Are there lessons from modern people lingering along this ancient trail? Well, renegade naturalist Doug Peacock explores the full range of climate change from the death of the Pleistocene megafauna to the disappearance of today's ice in his book, In the Shadow of the Sabertooth. It's a deeply personal odyssey that follows Peacock from archaeological digs in Michigan and Montana to the tiger-haunted forests of Siberia along the wild coast of the Pacific Northwest and to the rugged arroyos of Mexico in the American Southwest. A disabled Vietnam veteran and model for Edward Abbey's G.W. Hayduke, Doug Peacock has spent the last 50 years wandering the Earth's wildest places, studying grizzly bears and advocating for preservation of wildness. He uh, used Guggenheim and uh, Lannan Foundation grants for this book, and uh, Doug Peacock joins me on Access Utah today. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure. Uh, you join me, I think, from, from Montana? Yeah, I'm just about 30 miles north of Yellowstone Park up here in the Yellowstone River Valley. All right, and we're we're on cell phone. I think out of necessity, <laughs> so we'll we'll just hope it uh, it works here. Right, right on. Um, so, uh, tell me why why you went back to the the Pleistocene, the Clovis people, and 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 this era. This this you write is is one of the great adventure stories. Yeah, and the reason I chose this story, um, and and. Uh, if you get an echo on your end, just let me know, because I know I'm out here on the sticks with a cell phone. But, yeah. anyway, uh, you know, global warming, uh, the collective damage we've, we, we've done to the planet, that's the cardinal issue of my generation. And I wanted to write about it uh, in, in some instructive way. The story itself is not a good one, because a modern-day uh, global warming is a, a real bummer story. And... Uh, you know, the prognosis uh, is, is very grim, and I didn't exactly want to write a bummer book. So, <laughs> so I chose, uh, uh, you know, I have ancient background in paleontology and archaeology and geology, and I knew that the modern humans, Homo sapiens, had experienced, uh, be- before this one, another episode of global warming. And... Uh, it, it, the the cardinal one was about fifteen thousand years years ago, um, right here in North America, uh, and you know, at at that time, North America and South America were probably uninhabited, and uh, but though uninhabited by by two legged creatures, it teemed with the greatest array of of huge megafauna. You know, giant bears, giant lions and cheetahs, um, uh, mammoths, mastodons, 6,000-pound ground sloths. And when human beings hit this continent, and, you know, uh, uh, um, it's always curious to wonder what took them so long to get here, because they were in Australia uh, 60,000 years ago, and by 40,000 years ago, almost is settled uh, every continent in the world, in every niche, with the exception, of course, of Antarctica and North and South America. So, you know, I, I wonder if they didn't get here sooner. And when they finally exploded to the land where we live, south of the glaciers, um, within a few hundred years, uh, the Pleistocene ended, and the great megafauna went, ex- you know, near nearly every animal, uh, with notable exceptions, over a couple hundred pounds uh, uh, went extinct. We lost that, that uh, great array, all the saber-toothed cats and the giant lions and uh, uh, a, a wonderful array of animals. And uh, I, I, I was, exactly as you said, I was uh, wondering if there were lessons along that trail uh, which is, you know, the lessons of adapting to climate change, you know, of a radically changing climate, unknown beasts, many of whom could kill and eat human beings uh, anytime they wanted to, 
you know, we lived in the middle of the food pyramid and not on the top or even close to the top. And, you know, I call it the greatest adventure because of, uh, truly, it's for a person like myself who loves wilderness. You know, the greatest adventure of all is, is entering a, a great unknown wilderness. And uh, um, North and South America uh, were entirely wilderness. A wilderness uh, five times the size of Australia without a human footprint, without smoke on the horizon, and again, teeming with these wonderful, marvelous, and fierce beasts. I wonder if we could backtrack a bit. Um, you write about this in, in your first chapter. You you came to this sort of exploration early, right? Growing up in Michigan, you were out in the fields, you were, you were, you were looking for artifacts and such. Uh, yeah, um, I grew up in Michigan. I'll tell you what, I could read a couple paragraphs right from the beginning of the book. That'd be great. Uh-huh. That'd be great, yes. Yeah. So this is this is from uh, In the Shadow of the Sabertooth, and the subtitle is A Renegade Naturalist Considers Global Warming, the First Americans, and the Terrible Peace of the Places. So how did this story take root in my own life? When I was nine, I looked for arrowheads in the muddy furrows of spring and plowed fields of Michigan. The map of my world hugged the banks and terraces of great rivers, guiding me along the low snaking ridges of ancient beaches down into the cattail swamps where regions of Canada geese and Whistler swans darkened evening skies, the downy wildebeest of my watery Serengeti. In the blowouts on the sandy ridges, a profusion of fire-broken rock and brown shirt flakes blanketed scattered arrowheads of another kind. Summer brought clouds of mosquitoes off the marshes, and at the edge of the swamp, the receding river revealed a pile of huge, rough flint blades, a cast of material awaiting refinement in the finished arrowheads. Come autumn, at, at age 14... I walked the ridges under the blazing maples and elms. A gust of wind skittered the leaves across the large anthill, a normal feature in this forest soil. What was different about the anthill was the color of the sand. It was bright red with faint streaks of green. I would learn what this meant. Underneath, a stillborn child, consecrated with red sacred ochre, lay buried accompanied by Lake Superior copper grave offerings and a hundred triangular arrowheads. The arrowheads shaped a central mystery and a lost way of life. They spoke of another world, an older, more compelling world I wanted somehow to become part of. And uh, this has eventually led me into a large life. Uh, eventually, I craved the wilderness beyond the fens and ridges of my boyhood, and it, 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 in a serious way, it propelled me uh, to a lifehood of looking looking for distant ridges and vast uh, mountain ranges and stretches of tundra. And, you know, I spent pretty much my whole life in, uh, in search of wilderness, and, of course, the, the other part of that is because I came to value it so much uh, in defense and in fact you write that uh, you you feel at home this you feel a sense of home in in the wilderness and in, in this out in these places yes and that uh, that sense of home came directly from my boyhood uh, you know my dad was a professional boy scout uh, organizer and I would go out in the woods with him being too young to be a boy scout and just get cut loose, to wander through the woods and the swamps, and, uh, and, and that's how I grew up. In those. Um, and so the one place I've always been comfortable is, well, I call it the wilderness. Back there it was the woods, but once I saw the Rocky Mountains, um, that was it. I was never able to live uh, in the flatlands again. And uh, so... Um, you know, I uh, I uh, attended University of Michigan, where I was uh, 
I guess you would have called me a liberal in those days, you know. I uh, organized speaker program and uh, invited people like Martin Luther King. I did that myself. Uh, to the University of Michigan to speak. And, of course, I was kind of I was an anti-war guy. And I'd heard about... Um, the you know the, the the real war was the approaching one in Southeast Asia. I knew a lot about Laos, <clears throat> but I hardly heard of Vietnam at that time. But it had. I'm going to take a sip of water here. All right. <clears throat> you know it's it is. It's almost a per- perversion of my life that eventually I have to go see for myself, and. Uh, a couple of years later, I found myself in the highlands of central Vietnam as a Green Beret medic. And uh, mm. I spent a couple of tours there and was there all of 67. <clears throat> and I made it to the Tet Offensive. And you say you, you say that, and and you were you were decorated Soldier's Medal, Vietnamese Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry, Bronze Star. That, that's true. But I'll tell you what, the, uh, I handled too many dead children during the Tet Offensive, and uh, I had to get out of there, and so I did. And when I came back to this this country, like a lot of other vets, I was really out of sorts, you know. I couldn't talk to people, and uh, I couldn't even be around my family for very long. And so I went to the one place where I was comfortable, and that is the American wilderness. And I started... You know, back in May in the Canyonlands of, of southern Utah, as the snow smelled, I made my way north into the Wind Rivers, where I suffered a malaria attack and went down to the Yellowstone Plateau to heal in the hot springs, and I ran into grizzly bear. And that, uh, that, that propelled my life for the next couple of decades. And you you write that uh, in you've written several books. Grizzly years being one of those. You you credit grizzly bears with restoring your soul, as you put it. In a very real way, they saved my life. I, I make no, uh, uh, I make that clear. You know, within grizzly years. I mean, I knew that within the first couple of years. And I was, uh, you know, I lived with them seven months a year, uh, mostly alone, and almost always alone. Actually, in the first decade. Um, and in, especially in Yellowstone, I could tell that grizzly bears were having a lot of trouble. In the late 60s and early 70s, Yellowstone National Park closed their open pit garbage dump, at which uh, um, grizzly bears have been feeding for 80 years. And they closed them fast. And predictably, the grizzlies went into town sites, they went into campgrounds where managers and people shot them. And so about 270 grizzlies in the Yellowstone ecosystem were killed in a five-year period from 68 to 73. That's a big hit on a tiny population. Mm-hmm. And even a wacko, you know, Vietnam vet, stumbling around the backwoods of Yellowstone could tell bears were really in trouble and their population was diminishing. And uh, the, the rest of it is kind of simple. They were in trouble. They saved my life. And it was time for payback. And uh, I saw that payback into doing whatever I could uh, to advertise the peril of the grizzly bears and do whatever I could to make uh, to make their survival uh, more likely. And uh, somebody gave me an old 15-millimeter Bullock movie camera back about the same time. And I... Uh, I had a few friends who, who uh, contributed to a little uh, fund, and I bought up a bunch of film, and I went out in the woods to compose a collective portrait in 16 millimeter of what I thought were going to be the last grizzlies in the lower 48. You know, I, I confined my film record to um, basically the glacier and Yellowstone ecosystem, and I saw at that time, because the bears are really doing poorly, it's like a you know 19th century ethnographer going up the uh, Missouri River to record the last traditions of the Mandan Indians before they succumb to smallpox. 
I wonder, uh, and so you've worked for many years uh, advocating for Grizzlies. I wonder if we could backtrack just a bit and, and, and tell me a little bit more about why why you feel that you had this connection to the Grizzly Bears. I, uh, I wasn't looking for Grizzly Bears when I went out into the woods. I just ran into them. And uh, it's not like I didn't know about grizzly bears. I'd seen one up in Alaska in the early 60s, uh, but it really didn't take. And um, uh, once you run into grizzly bears, uh, your entire psychic changes because you are no longer the boss man. You know, you don't walk down... um, you know, the, the Sierra Crest with a Celtic pack on your back, thinking about your portfolio or your girlfriend. You know, something's out there that can big, and it can kill and eat you if it wants to. And uh, that is like an enforced edition of humility. And if there's anything I needed at the time, it, it was a sense of humility. You know, I didn't want to look inward. I wanted to extend my senses outward. I wanted to step away from my culture and look back in at myself and my culture. And a quick exit I know from culture is wilderness. You know, you get out there for four days, and it's the same world it has been since our species came out of Africa 70,000 years ago. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be back with uh, Doug Peacock. Uh, he's author of several books. We've talked about one of those, uh, Grizzly um uh, let's see, I'm, for, I'm forgetting the, the name of that uh, the book. Uh, Grizzly Years was the first book. Grizzly Years. And there's another book called The Essential Grizzly. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, Doug Peacock credits grizzly bears with uh, with restoring his soul after Vietnam. He went out and wandered for weeks on end in the in the wilderness, uh, from uh, including parts of uh, southern Utah. Uh, so we, we have a connection in Utah here to Doug Peacock. And he lives in Montana, still advocates for the, the grizzly bear. Uh, his question, he's putting forward and answering, seeking an answer to in his uh, book, In the Shadow of the Sabertooth, is um, do, can we draw lessons from the Pleistocene age 15,000 years ago and how humans handled uh, climate change then? Can we draw lessons to now? And he says yes, and he says there are even some hopeful lessons. We'll get into more of that following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Elon Magazine, a bi-monthly artistic celebration of inspirational stories from extraordinary women defining the Southwest lifestyle through culture, art, and adventure. Information at elonwoman.com and USU Human Resources. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. October is National Depression Awareness Month. Depression is a common but serious illness. Do not be ashamed if you believe or feel that you may have depression. Here are some useful tips when dealing with common symptoms. Get a depression screening done if you are feeling down. It is better to get checked than to sit and wait. The sooner you seek treatment, the better your outlook will be. Treat problems such as insomnia or sleep apnea to help ease your symptoms. Eat healthy. A good diet rich in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and fish may help battle depression. Learn to walk away. Depression can cloud your judgment. Try taking a deep breath and make decisions about a topic when you begin to feel better. Remember, depression does not have to be a normal part of life. With the right steps and a positive attitude, you can overcome it. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Doug Peacock. He calls himself a renegade naturalist. He spent many years out in the wilderness. This is something that, uh, that restores him, something he says is important for us all. And he's written several books. Uh, the latest is In the Shadow of the Sabertooth, a renegade naturalist considers global warming, the first Americans, and the terrible beasts of the Pleistocene. The central question that he posits in the book, are there lessons from modern people lingering along this ancient trail? About 15,000 years ago, the weather began to warm, melting glaciers of the late Pleistocene, driving beasts of the Ice Age toward extinction. In this new landscape, humans managed to adapt to unfamiliar habitats and dangerous creatures in the midst of a wildly fluctuating climate. So there are some parallels 
Uh, Doug Peacock uh, served in Vietnam, came back, and uh, and says he was restored. His soul was restored uh, by grizzly bears and 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 the wilderness. And uh, he is, by the way, very interestingly, and hopefully we talk a little bit about this. He's the model for Edward Abbey's G.W. Hayduke. Um, I wonder, you talked about, uh, Doug Peacock, about uh, one of the reasons you, you liked being with the grizzly bears. It restored a sense of humility, a sense of your place in nature. Grizzly bear is a, is a big beast. It could, could kill you and eat you if it wanted. Uh, this is something the, the people of the Pleistocene dealt with. Uh, saber-toothed tigers, uh, mastodons, these are beasts that could, that could kill them. Of course, they hunted them as well. Uh and I wonder yeah, what the... that's, uh, that's, that's really true, is that uh, there is so many animals in the place scene that uh, the first humans had to deal with. And, of course, one of the original questions is why did it take uh, humans so long to colonize North America? Because we really didn't, uh, we didn't do it until about 13,000 years ago. That's when uh, the first uh, great hunters of the... Globus tradition hit Utah, for instance. I mean, what kept them back? Because they had an ice-free corridor that was open, you know, 500 years earlier, say 13,500 years ago. They had a coast that could have boated down any time uh, after about uh, 14,000 years ago when the glaciers uh, started to melt and, uh, you know, the oceans were rising and that thing. But they didn't get down there. And uh, one wonders why. And my uh, feeling is they could not secure their kills against this giant bear. The giant bear was called the short-faced bear. And actually the last, you know, the last record of the short-faced bear, which uh, is about 12,800 years ago, is from Utah also. So, you know, Utah had Clovis hunters and it had short-faced bear and it would have been quite a place to take a trip 13,000 years ago. Mm. But that that short-faced bear, the specimen stands seven foot at the hip. And, you know, that means he had a broad muzzle, and he could stand upright like a grizzly, and he would have been 15 feet tall. And with flaring nostrils, he could probably smell a mammoth carcass from 20 miles away. That would be a really difficult animal to secure your kill against if you were an ancient mammoth hunter. And uh, climate change was taking down the beast. It was doing things like uh, driving mammoths around in the oasis like pockets, and these hunters followed these animals. Uh, And, you know, eventually I deal with our last uh, uh, period of extinction before the current one, that we're in right now with the much larger one, incidentally. And, uh, you know, the deadly combination of global warming and human activity is a timeless, deadliest formula for extinction. And, uh, you know, today's, you know, shifting weather patterns that the the shorthand we call global warming, it's going to exceed anything our ancestors faced. And you're right. It's 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 probably going to get scarier from here. It is. It is going to get much scarier. And uh, as I hinted, I didn't write directly about this story, but I mean, the prognosis is scary enough that I uh, I'm not even comfortable talking to high school students all the time because it just looks like we've just we've just destroyed the world for them. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are experiencing right now what authorities call the sixth great extinction, a much deadlier event than that of the Pleistocene. And, um, you know, the the central issue of our times, I believe, is, is why humans don't seem to perceive what lies in their long-term interest for survival. And I mean physical survival. And uh, there are, you know, wise people uh, like James Lovelock, instance, who thinks we're going to go through a bottleneck, that of the 7 billion people on Earth, you know, 6.5 billion of them are going to be dead by the, we don't know when, by the end of the century, or earlier, the, the, you know, the, and uh, that, that 
what few agricultural lands that are going to be left where people can actually live are going to be way up north. He foresees a brutal future where really civilization is dead. Things are ruled by, you know, thug-like warlords where global warming drives agriculture completely out of Africa and Asia and where do a billion uh, Chinese go? Well, they go into the gulags of industrial agriculture in Siberia, and uh, they may nuke it out over those lands. I mean, it's it's uh, it's, it's it's terrible stuff. And I try to draw simple parallels along the way. You cannot force this because uh, the global warming of of fourteen thousand years ago. We don't have enough data or smoking guns to fill in, you know, the, the hard answers to those questions. But, you know, there is pragmatic knowledge, and uh, we should, excuse me, um, you know, at, at the end of this, uh, we may enter a world uh, which we won't recognize. And uh, the the most important conclusion I make in this very in, in this book, which is based on science, is um, is that wilderness is going to be as important uh, to our future as any anything we can think of. It's going to be the key to surviving, you know, the, the global warming that we're in right now, and that is a complicated argument. But basically, that's. We, we humans are the same creatures that uh, the Pleistocene hunters were. We know we have exactly the same brains, that precious thing we call a mind. All of that evolved in habitats whose remnants today we call the wilderness. And at the end of the game, we're going to need some of that original habitat. We're going to need it for all kinds of reasons. But uh, mainly to perceive... You know, the saber tooth in the bush today is seeing the distant incremental ocean rise, uh, which is going to displace a billion starving strangers. And somehow modern humans have got to find an empathy that embraces, you know, the grandchildren of people we don't know living on the opposite side of the planet, because it's going to hit them first. But it's coming, no matter what. And no matter where you live, I wonder if you could expand on that that idea. We're going to need wilderness. Are you, you're you're saying we're going to need wilderness beyond just the idea of it. We're going to need the actual wilderness to uh, as habitat, and 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 is that going to change the way we live? I think we're not going to have many choices. I don't believe we're in control, and um, I think the wilderness will will be there in that pragmatic way because it, it is a place to start again, no matter how dire things go, and uh, some some of the sci-fi movie and books, you know, may not be that far off. It, 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 uh, uh, we're going to, you know, one ice sheet down in Antarctica, like the Ross ice sheet, it could fall off, this, it could fall off into the ocean this afternoon. It's done so before in geologic time. That would mean 12 feet of ocean rise everywhere within a week. You know, think what that would be doing to our coastal cities, you know. And uh, it may take something like that to get uh, the attention of, 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 of people like us who may live in New York City where, where you know, where life is easy, it's good for now, we're surrounded by material comfort, and, uh, you know, uh, global warming looks like something distant and incremental and many affects people we don't know but um, that's not the case and uh, the more the scientists come in with their data they find that they've underestimated the time in which these dire changes take place you know there's always another mechanism uh, that they they hadn't thought of and uh, so I'm worried about my children my grandchildren I'm not talking about next century. Hmm. And you're talking about a disconnect. We'd, you'd say in the, in the Pleistocene era, 
you know, the, the man living there was very aware that saber-toothed tiger might emerge from the bush and, and kill him, very, you know, very aware of the danger. Uh, you're saying this yeah, is and, every bit and, as dangerous and, and, and we're not and aware of it. The of that, the value of wilderness is, it's a good place to think, as simple as that. That's where we worked out all our original problems, you know, and it is a landscape which is not insular. You don't look inland. Uh, you're, you're looking out and you're thinking and you're adapting to the real thing all the time. And so this has, you know, a, has a, a metaphorical habitat for intelligent thinking. It's as good as it gets. I wonder, uh, we're going to take another break here coming up uh, pretty soon, but I-, I wonder if I could have you talk about uh, this uh, quote from uh, John Muir. You say he believed his passion for nature came from a, quote, natural inherited wildness in our blood. Yeah. Okay. And um, I- I- maybe you could talk a little bit about that, and then we'll take the break. Oh, okay. Um yeah, I don't, I don't remember that exact quote, but that's exactly... Uh, John Muir writes so ecstatically of wilderness. All of a sudden, it's like somebody injected something into his blood when he, when he hit the wild country, especially the high Sierras. And he became a different person. And he does believe that, you know, that lives in us, our, you know, our draw and instinct for wildness. Um whether it's a desert landscape or, or a glaciated mountain or a vast expanse of tundra, that we have an organic need for it, and it's biological, and it's in our genes. And uh, I agree with him, and so did Ed Abbey. You know, at the end of his life, um, Ed Abbey thought the only thing he saw around our, civil, our civilization worth saving was wilderness. And I've pretty much come to support that idea and fight for it. That's what I do. That's mm. the rest of my life is a fight to survive. And I, the key to that survival I, I see is, is fighting for wilderness. We'll take a break next and uh, come back with more from Doug Peacock. He's author of Grizzly Years and other books, and his latest is In the Shadow of the Sabertooth. A renegade naturalist considers global warming, the first Americans, and the terrible beasts of the Pleistocene. He says there are lessons we can learn in our modern age from the people of the Pleistocene age who dealt with rapid climate change in their time. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing, 630 West, 200 North, Logan. Personalized printing for home or business, including wedding announcements, thank you cards, family histories, labels, and notepads. Information at squareoneprinting.com. This is folk singer Michael Jonathan inviting you to tune in to our tribute to Dr. Ralph Stanley featuring Don Rigsby. Nathan Stanley and Dr. Ralph's touring band, the Clinch Mountain Boys. It's Woodsong's tribute to Dr. Ralph Stanley on this week's broadcast of the Woodsong's Old Time Radio. Saturday nights at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. About 15,000 years ago, the weather began to warm, melting the glaciers of the late Pleistocene, driving the beasts of the Ice Age toward extinction. In this new landscape, humans managed to adapt to unfamiliar habitats and dangerous creatures in the midst of a wildly fluctuating climate. And Doug Peacock, in his new book, In the Shadow of the Sabertooth, asks, are there lessons for modern people lingering along this ancient trail? We're talking about uh, In the Shadow of the Sabertooth and other topics with Doug Peacock. You're welcome to join this conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, Doug Peacock, uh, you made reference to Edward Abbey. You were uh, a a friend of his. You had, I guess, a somewhat stormy relationship with Edward uh, Edward Abbey. And, in fact, he uh, he loosely based uh, George Washington Hayduke, his character, on you, which uh, I 
that could <laughs> not entirely uh, flattering. And you've written about that. Uh, I wonder if you could t- tell us uh, first of all how you how you met Ed Abbey and uh, a little bit about your relationship with him. Uh, yeah. Hey, incidentally, uh, I should mention that I am speaking in Salt Lake City on uh, next Monday, Monday, October twenty eighth, at Westminster College. Okay. Uh, it's part of their Common Land series, and uh, so uh, I'll, I'll be there this weekend. <laughs> but, so, um, so back that's to Abby. Um, okay. Yeah, I, when I came back from Vietnam and the bears went to sleep, I went back down to the southwest. I went through southern Utah, and I went all the way down to Tucson, where I got a job as a hippie mailman. And uh, about that time, I met, I ran into Ed, Ed Abbey. I... Uh, I met him at a friend's house. The great writer, William Eastley, invited me over to his place one winter night. I drove a motorcycle out in the desert, spent an hour looking for his place, and when I got there, there were some people there, poet type, I don't know. And uh, so I sat down, uh, and I tried to roll, I smoked cigarettes then, and so I tried to roll a little joint-like cigarette out of bugler tobacco, and as I light it, I was so cold, cold, my hand pulsing, and I couldn't light my cigarette. And this guy sitting next to me with a dark black beard, tall guy, reached over and gave me a light. And I was at Abbey. And he worked at Oregon Pipe as a uh, seasonal ranger. And he said, uh, we talked about mountain lions. He'd just written an article on mountain lions for Life magazine, and uh, I'd seen a few of them. And he said, come on out and visit. So a week later, uh, constituting good manners in, in that, uh, in that uh, particular era, I went out there with a big bottle of whiskey and a pack of beer and knocked on his door. And uh, you know, the rest is history. We were, we were you know, he was cantankerous and, and, you know, and I was worse. I was, you know, I, I was, you know, he jumped at every noise back then. So it was, you know, you're correct, it was a contemporary relationship, but uh, when the game came down to the nitty-gritty, we were very, very close, and uh, you know what, I eventually buried Ed Abbey myself in a beautiful, illegal grave deep into the desert, and every now and then I go out and I visit old Ed. So, uh, you know, and we, our friendship was based on uh, on one central thing, and that is the value of wilderness. You know, it was it was true when he was alive, it's true today. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the character Hey Duke. People will be familiar with that, Monkey Wrench Gang. And it, it's, it's yeah, you know, based on you, apparently, uh, not an entirely flattering uh, Well, Hey Duke was a, a dull. I yeah. don't exactly consider myself a dull. Yes. But, you know, Hey Duke was infamous enough to be crawled on the bathroom walls of men's rooms throughout the uh, American West. And uh, um, Ed and I, uh, Ed and I just solved that between our two. We, we, uh, neither one of us spoke of the origins of Hey Duke after 1975. But, you know, that's, that's true. Uh, we had mutual friends that said, you know, People don't do that, you know, friends don't do that to one another, meaning in some way Abby had abused her friendship by borrowing a little too much, you know, mm-hmm. of the uh, physical character and turning him into a, a well, it, and there's a lot of truth in there too, but the dolt part, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I consider, you know, the, 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 uh, the questionable glitch from being a, you know, a, a well-known um Dull uh, folk hero to uh, you know uh, it, it it balances out exactly hmm. and it uh, didn't permanently damage our friendship in any way. He was actually welcome to do that kind of borrowing. I did the technical editing of the Monkey Wrench game myself, sitting on the rim of uh, you know needles overlooked down in South Moab. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. 
Uh, and you write on your, uh, I found this on your website, by the way, DougPeacock.net. You write about this, and, and you say that, uh, I'll just quote a sentence here, Ed painted the ex-Green Beret Hayduke with precise brushstrokes as caught in an emotional backwater, a backwater out of whose eddies I wanted to swim. And so you, you say you maybe that gave you an impetus to... Uh, you know, to make some forward progress. You didn't want to get caught in that. You say the only thing worse than reading your own press was becoming someone else's fiction. Yeah, that's the best I can say. You know, you don't want to become somebody else's fiction. By the time the, uh, the Monkey Wrench Gang was published, you know, I, I was busy with my own life, which was trying to save grizzly bears. You know, I was a full-time, and I worked as a backcountry or a climbing ranger in the North Cascades or Glacier, and I filmed grizzlies about eight, nine months a year. So, you know, uh, it, it wasn't like I was sitting around uh, reading reading the uh, outdoor magazines about George Washington Haydu. I was <laughs> yeah. busy. Exactly. Uh, by the way, um, Doug Peacock mentioned this. I'll mention this again right here. Uh, he's going to be in Utah on Monday. Uh, an appearance at the uh, Westminster College in Salt Lake City. That's at 7 o'clock in the Vive Gore Auditorium on the campus of Westminster College. Uh, the title of the talk, The Greatest Adventure, A Survivor's Guide to a Melting Century. Uh, you, your chance to go and see Doug Peacock if you're going to be in the uh, the Salt Lake City area. That is uh, this coming Monday. Um, so uh, tell me about... You know, you, I, I should, I'd like to mention one thing. Yes. Because we're not going to have enough time to talk about it. But there's a tremendous amount of archaeology... And, and this is Pleistocene archaeology uh, in this book, and we're and we're not going to get to it. You know, that finally uh, climaxes with the the, the Clovis people that the, made this iconic, magnificent, fluted spearhead, a great big thing, and a very effective weapon. And of course, the terminal dates of the classic megafauna overlap with the time of Clovis. You know, who seemed to just explode across the continent all at once. And they only they were only they were only here two or three hundred years, and at the same time, all the megafauna go away, and uh, this brings up the dark question of the nature of the beast. And I write about this. You know, are we humans, homicidal brutes, deservedly kicked out of Eden, ready to nuke or nuke it out to the end of the earth, or are we what we sometimes see ourselves as uh, deeply sentient? being people of that type of empathy that surviving this new hot future is going to require. You know, and that comes up again and again. I wonder, where do you come down on that? That uh, central question. Because the, the Clovis people, uh, one theory is uh, they they were instrumental in, in this the extinction yes. of the, the megafauna. They spread out, and they were so skilled as hunters, they spread very quickly throughout all of the Americas and then killed off all of these animals. And, and, and listen, that's that's an open question, and it's it's one uh, to which we or myself we don't have the answer to it yet. And uh, uh, Clovis uh, maybe didn't cause the paleo extinction, but it wouldn't have happened without him. So you know that is uh, paleo extinction still a, a a big open question. It couldn't have happened without global warming, and it couldn't have happened, I think, without the close hunters. Hmm. And so, you know, that's the one thing that, uh, um, you know, that iconic Clovis point, you know, is uh, the first of a long series of American inventions, you know, as deadly and beautiful as a Patriot missile. Hmm. We're still making up. Yeah, as you, as you mentioned, we're, we're in the middle of, of, of an even bigger mass extinction. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we're we're just recording the edges of it. it you know, it reminds me of uh, my old friend Paul Shepard, who also lived down uh, pretty pretty close to Utah and Wyoming most of his life. And he's gone now, but he was a real mentor. And you know, he wrote these wonderful, difficult books about the place to see, about how important and vital life was back then. I mean, human life, the social aspect of human life. Uh, and you could just see him. Just as he was discovering 
the vital importance of wilderness and of life in the place, the same when everything was wilderness, he, he was seeing these places disappear as we are today. And, you know, it made him angry. He could sense his anger. And I feel much the same way today. You know, we need this, uh, this esoteric thing, you know, we, we think of as national parks and circumscribed wilderness areas, but in fact, it's that wildness lives in it, and I, we're going to have to get in touch with it again. You know, there's a lot to be learned from places that might get relevant again um, sooner than we think. So you think that's, is, is that the central answer? We do we get in touch with our sense of wildness? What uh, What's the answer? The answer is we we perceive global warming uh, with the same kind of, of shaking shudder of danger that we used to do when saber-toothed tigers and short-faced bears came out of the brush at us. I mean, that is the, it's a perception of risk. We don't have it today, and we're in great, great danger, much more danger than when this country was prowled by saber-toothed and mammoth. And how do you think we get there? Because as you point out, we're a lot of us. It's not a present danger. Right on. Think about it. And uh, I don't really have a good answer for that, uh, but I know that it's going to take. It's going to take a disaster. It's going to take that twelve feet of sea rises that floods all the subways and uh, uh, in in New York City and drowns Bangladesh and drives a, 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 almost a billion people out of the lowlands of that country, you know, into, into, into China, into India, wars break out. Um, it, it, it does seem with natural disasters, you know, you can, this, is, this is a superficial perception, but, you know, it looks like people behave more decently. You know, when, when, uh, when great disasters befall us these days, whether they're, they're bombings or they're, or they're perfect hurricanes, and we should never think it, uh, an event like uh, uh, what hit uh, New York a few years ago was a perfect storm. That is just, that's, that is our future. That's going to happen again and again because that's exactly what global warming causes. And, uh, I, you know, maybe it's going to take it's, it's a lot of suffering before we actually face this this uh, crisis, which is pretty far along, and and some people think that you know we're right at the point where we've got enough greenhouse gases in the air already. Once the polar caps melt, the rainforest could collapse. Once that happens, the permafrost is going to melt, releasing more methane than the Earth can stand, and it could raise the temperature another six or seven degrees. That's really that's grim. That means, uh, you know, buy up uh, tundra uh, on the north slope of the Brooks Range in Plant Pinobee. Hmm. Okay, you heard it here. You heard it here first. Uh, I wonder if we could end with the, with the Clovis people. They 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 did adapt, and in fact, they they migrated. Uh, you know, uh, using the changes that uh, that were occasioned by climate change in their day, and then they were gone very quickly. It, it's true. They. The, there's controversy about all this stuff, but it, it, it seems clear to me that the Clovis people came out of the ice-free corridor. And that corridor was open because uh, the most important archaeological site in North America is up here in Montana. And it's the burial of a Clovis child with 115 of the most spectacular Clovis artifacts ever, ever found. Um, from there, the radiocarbon dates show that Clovis landed everywhere, Florida, Panama, New York, all, all at once, within a couple, you know, within decades. And they only persisted on Earth until this magic date of about 12,880 years ago, when a sudden cooling hit the Earth. But the Clovis 
to make that kind of movement, it is, I mean, there were, there were people here before Clovis, called pre-Clovis, but there were tiny groups of, we don't know if they survived or if they flourished, but, you know, it was nothing. Clovis as a colonization, there's no colonization on Earth that went as fast and far as the Clovis people did in North America. And uh, it's really likely that they specialize in mammoth. I've had the pleasure to hold and the privilege to hold one of these seven-inch globus Rabbits and, and bison never come up. You, you think of elephants. And uh, it's likely that the global warming was carving the North American habitat into pockets, oases of habitats and watering holes uh, where... Their principal game, which I believe was a mammoth, uh, leapfrog. And the Clovis people leapfrog, too. They, they move faster than any people we know on Earth. And it was all over in 250 years. You know, the, 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 that date of, of 12,880 years marks the end of Clovis and, and the end of all the megafauna. You know, the dire wolves, the, the silver-toothed tigers, the great Pleistocene lions, short-faced bears, all went, horses, camels, tapers, they all went extinct at the same geologic, geologic instant. And uh, after that, Clovis people may have survived, but the culture ended suddenly. And uh, you can hear more about this uh, with uh, Doug Peacock's lectures coming to Utah. We'll have to leave it there, uh, sort of in the in the middle of the story, because we're out of time. The book is yeah. In the Shadow of the Sabertooth, A Renegade Naturalist Considers Global Warming, The First Americans, and the Terrible Beasts of the Pleistocene. Doug Peacock, as I mentioned, is coming to Utah. He'll be at Westminster College on Monday. Monday evening, 7 o'clock, Vivgor Auditorium. His lecture there is The Greatest Adventure, A Survivor's Guide to a Melting Century. Doug Peacock, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, Tom, mutually, a great pleasure. And uh, join us tomorrow for Access Utah. And uh, for producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Waste not. Studies show leaking faucets and toilets account for as much as 14% of all indoor water use. That's 10 gallons per person per day. By replacing an old toilet with a new model, the typical household can save up to 21,000 gallons of water per year. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches.